you would turn to chapter 8 of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, um, we're in the midst of a study of this epistle that we're finding so very relevant to the needs of our own life and our own cultural situation and finding, I hope you're finding it as I am, uh, helpful and instructive and uh, helping us in that goal of being authentic believers learning to live the Christ life. I so much appreciated Pastor Ben's message last week. I listened to it online. We were on vacation last week and uh, enjoyed listening to Ben and his story from his hunting experience in Somerset County. I was thinking as I was listening to it that if I ever joined Ben, we would actually, on a hunting expedition, we would actually be dangerous in the woods together. Uh, so I'm not going to suggest such a thing, but I, I just really enjoyed his message. And uh, out of chapter 9, becoming all things to all people that we might win some. Now we're going to backtrack to chapter 8 because as Ben explained last week, uh, I spent more time than originally expected as I mapped out this series of messages on chapter 7. And so uh, we're playing catch up today and looking at chapter 8 verses 1 through 13, the text that was read uh, read earlier for us. And what you need to understand, if you're not getting the picture uh, yet in this continuing study, is that the church in Corinth was experiencing a number of issues that that needed uh, pastoral leadership and the apostles' correction. And actually, in this section that we're in, in 1 Corinthians, Apparently, some of the leaders of the church in Corinth had written some of their concerns out in a letter of some kind of correspondence to Paul. And Paul now, in his letter back to the church, is responding to those issues uh, that they had raised and needed some counsel, some, some direction in. And so we come today, after having looked at marriage and lawsuits and sexual immorality, we come today and we look at the issue of food sacrifice to idols. Now, I know from the outset, this probably is a little bit of a difficult issue for us in this postmodern 21st century world to get our minds around and to understand why this was such a big issue. But you need, as best as you can, to put yourself back into the first century and understand what was happening. You need to know that Corinth was one of the great Grecian cities in the first century. It was a cosmopolitan city, and and it was replete with all types of immorality. And uh, um, it was full of temples that were erected in honor of and to the worship of a variety of Greek gods and goddesses. Uh, One of the great temples there was the temple of Aphrodite, uh, the goddess of love. Another was the temple that was erected in honor and to the worship of Apollo, the god of the sun. The Greeks were polytheistic, that is to say that they worshipped many gods, whereas in the Judeo-Christian tradition we are monotheistic, we worship one God, the Father of us all, Father in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Greeks worshipped many gods. And they had gods for every occasion. They had a god for nearly everything. God of the sun, god of the moon, goddesses for war, goddesses for love, for wisdom, for storms, for those who were lost, 
for the land and for the sea. They had a god and goddess for nearly everything. But not only were the, the Greeks polytheistic, they were also polydemonistic. That is to say that they believed that there were evil spirits running rampant everywhere and they proposed a regular threat. And many of the Greeks believed that one of the ways in which a person could rid themselves or, or prevent themselves from becoming demon-possessed was uh, to stay away from food that had... Um, uh, had demons attached to it. You see, they believed that demons could attach themselves to this food, and if they ate this food, that they would then ingest the demon and become a house for, an environment for, the demon to do its work. So one of the ways that the Greeks had uh, fixed this was to offer uh, food, sacrifices, up to the Greek god, whether it be Apollo or the goddess Aphrodite or whatever, many, many gods and goddesses, offer the food up to this god or goddess, and in the process of making this sacrifice, that the demons that had attached themselves to the food would be gotten rid of, and the food would have been made clean. And then safe to eat. It's kind of like the tomato scare that we've had. You didn't have to worry about any salmonella because if it had been offered up as a sacrifice to God, the demons had been detached from it and it was safe, therefore, to ingest. Well, so the Greeks were, and they'd grown up with this. This was their religion. They brought their sacrifices to the temple, to the temple of Aphrodite or the temple of Apollo or whatever, and that sacrifice would be butchered there uh, in the pagan temple. And part of the meat would be burnt on the altar and, and was to appease the gods so that God would look with favor upon them for their offering and that they would be blessed and that they would be happy and that all things would be successful in their life. And they believed that that sacrifice that was lifted there guaranteed them success and health and wealth and happiness. But a portion of that food that was offered up in these Greek temples was also uh, taken by the person who brought the offering. And because it had been part of it had been offered up to God, therefore the demons had been detached from the food and it was safe to take home and eat. And so they didn't have to worry about it. It was good meat. It was safe, had no demons in it. They weren't taking a risk of ingesting a demon. Another part of the food, however, was kept by the priests and the priestesses of the particular temple to which these worshipers would come and make their sacrifice. And this is how the staff of the church ate. They made their, uh, their livelihood off of the temple. And so a portion of this offering that was offered up to these gods was taken home by the worshiper. Part of it was offered up to the gods. And a third part was kept by the priests. Well, you can imagine all these Grecian citizens bringing these offerings. There was way, way too much food for the priests and the priestesses to eat. So they got an idea. They decided that they would sell the food that was had been offered up to the idols. They would sell it to the local market and the butcher. So they would run across the street from the temple to the butcher shop and they would take part of that food. Good merchant-like people. They would uh, sell it and make a profit of it and it would help, uh, you know, promote the work of the temple. Seemed good. 
also in the temples, though, always looking to uh, to make some money. The priests and the priestesses decided that they were they're missing an opportunity. So they decided to set up restaurants in their temples and uh, had a food court. And uh, since the meat was offered to them at no cost, they could sell it at a low price in their food court and make some money off it again to promote the, the work of the temple. Well, all of this seemed very common. It was normal fare in Grecian society, in this polytheistic culture. But then come along these people who had been converted by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Their spiritual eyes had been opened. They'd come to faith in Christ. They were seeking to be authentic believers, disciples, people of the way, walking the narrow way of Jesus. Many of these people who had come to Christ had been converted out of this pagan polytheistic society where they had grown up with this whole thing of offering this meat unto idols. They were totally familiar with it. And so when they came to faith in Christ and they discovered that there were some in the church that were willing to eat this meat that had been offered up to a pagan god, these brothers and sisters who had grown up in this pagan society and who were not mature in the faith, but were, as Paul describes, the weak, their conscience was weak, they were immature, they were overly scrupulous. They were offended. These weaker brothers were offended by the other brothers and sisters in the church who were willing to eat this meat that was offered up to idols. And this caused consternation within the church. There was a major split in the church in Corinth. And so what you had was some Corinthian Christians gathering in houses for worship, and they were the non-meat eaters. They, they were strictly vegetarian, and they would gather together for worship over here. And then you had the carnivorous Christians who loved meat, and they had no scruples at all about eating this meat that had been offered up to idols. And in a moment, we're going to look at the reasons they give for What does it matter what we eat? We don't understand what all the fuss is about. It's okay to eat this meat. And so you have these carnivorous Christians over here in this house worshiping together and eating their meat. And you have the other members of the body of Christ in Corinth who are non-meat eaters and they're separate and apart from this group over there. And so instead of unity in the church, you had discord and you had a lack of harmony and you had people backbiting and you had people talking about one another and you had people judging each other and their walk with God. And it was just a royal mess. And so the leaders of the church write to the apostle and say, what are we to do? How do we handle this? What is your advice? Now, one of the things that they're really asking Paul is, is it permissible for people who are getting real, who are seeking to live an authentic Christian life, is it permissible for Christians to eat this food that has been offered up to idols? Or should we refrain from it? And Paul, what should we do if we're invited into the home of an unbelieving Greek friend and he or she is serving us meat at the dinner table? Should we ask our host before we eat it? Should we ask whether or not it was meat that was offered up to idols in the local temple and thereby risk offending our host? Or should we just go ahead and eat it without asking? 
Also, you need to understand that because of these food courts they had in the temples, many of the unbelieving people, the pagans who were in this polytheistic Grecian society, would have their wedding receptions and their gatherings in the temple themselves. And so it was not unlikely that you, as a follower of Jesus, would be invited to a friend or family member who was not a follower of Jesus, and you were invited to the temple food court. And what are you going to do when they put this meat that you know that was just offered up to idols, they put it on a a plate before you, what are you going to do? Really what they're asking Paul is, Paul, what what do we do? What do we do in issues that are related to these so-called gray matters of the faith? Where the scripture doesn't explicitly speak to a particular issue, how do we deal with that? Now, Again, I think it's hard for us in in this 21st century to get our minds wrapped around this, but maybe we have some issues like that today. I don't know about your particular uh, growing up years or your cultural setting, but uh, as you probably know, if you've known me for any length of time, that I grew up in a very uh, strict, pietistic, legalistic home. I'm grateful for the godly heritage I have. Grateful for the parents and grandparents and great-grandparents who loved the Lord and were seeking to honor the Lord in every way they knew best. Part of their cultural set was, though, that there were certain things that Christians did and there were certain things that Christians did not do. Now, I know that you may have a hard time believing this, but... um, Part of my growing up years, it it was thought and it was said and it was preached from behind pulpits that any woman who wore makeup was worldly and sinning and needed to repent. Now, I know you ladies are saying, holy smoke. What rock did this guy crawl out from under? But I mean, there were sermons that were preached about how a godly woman would never wear makeup. And so my mother and my grandmother and my great-grandmother, they never wore any makeup whatsoever. They needed a little makeup. (laughs) I hope my mom doesn't listen online. I'll never forget as a teenager when my mom first put on lipstick. I thought she was going to hell. (laughs) Or jewelry. We weren't allowed to wear jewelry of any kind. No earrings, no rings, not even a wedding ring. Not even a wedding ring. There were some men who were uh, so desirous of being authentic believers and God-honoring and Christ-honoring. And and I'm not criticizing. I want you to understand. I'm not criticizing. This was their understanding that a necktie was a worldly thing. And so in my tradition, the the men in our tradition did not wear a necktie. Some of you men are thinking, boy, I like that. (laughs) Instead of wearing a necktie, they just buttoned their, their dress shirt up to the top. And it looked rather strange, but uh, they just buttoned it up and they went tieless because a tie was a worldly thing. And, and we were trying to separate ourselves from the world and, and to be godly and, and to be holy. That was, that was the understanding. So 
they had taken things that were gray in Scripture and they'd made them black and white. They'd made them law. And they'd turn it into kind of a legalistic, you do this, you don't do this. You do this, you don't do this. And it really, in some ways, strained some of the joy and the liberty out of following Christ. Now, I I know that it, it might be hard for some of us to relate to that, and it might be hard for some of us to find application to what Paul is dealing with here, but... Paul is, is addressing these Christians, and uh, these, uh, particularly the strong Christians who are feeling their spiritual oats, and he's, uh, he's saying, look, I understand you're free in Christ. I know that you believe you can eat whatever you want to eat, and th- that it doesn't matter. But Paul says there's something more important going on here than just your knowledge. He says, in, he says, now, about food, verse 1, now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge. I agree with you, Paul says. We study the Scripture, and, and there's nowhere in Scripture where it forbids eating this meat. We know that. It's not forbidden. But remember this, that knowledge isn't enough. Knowledge alone doesn't do it. Paul says knowledge alone does what? Knowledge puffs up. But love, what? Builds up. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So Paul says, it isn't enough to just say, you know that Scripture doesn't forbid this. There's got to be more, Paul says. There's got to be love and consideration for your fellow brother in the body of Christ. In verse 2, he says, the man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. But the man who loves God is known by God. In other words, you don't know what you uh, ought to really know about, and that is love. You've got all this knowledge, but, but it doesn't seem to have any taste of love about it. You know, I think there's a word for the church today here. We've got a lot of Christians running around with a lot of spiritual knowledge. But a lot of those same Christians have failed to love their brother or their sister in the way that God, through Christ, unconditionally loves us. Paul says you really don't know what you ought to know, and what you ought to know is all about love. And he illustrates that in verse 3 by saying, but the man who loves God is known by God. In other words, you have to go beyond knowledge to love. It isn't enough to say, we've studied the problem, we've looked at the issue, we know what Scripture says about this, and it doesn't say anything against eating, eating meat that's been offered to idols. So, let's eat. Paul says, no, no, wait a minute. You haven't taken enough time to think about love. You may know that something isn't evil. You may know that in it. In and of itself, it isn't evil. You may know that it's not forbidden by God or forbidden by Scripture itself. But knowledge, Paul says, knowledge is not enough. You've got to have love. You say, well, what does that mean for us then? You've got to have love. It means that you have to take into consideration your other brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. 
you need to take into consideration how will my behaviors, how will my actions, how will my choices, how will the exercise of my own spiritual liberty, how will that impact other sisters and brothers in the family of God? Paul says in later on, we'll look at it in more detail in sermons to come in 1 Corinthians 13. If I have all knowledge and, and know all mysteries and have not love, what does he say? I am nothing. I'm like a tinkling cymbal, a clanging gong. I am nothing if I have not love. In other words, I can't live on knowledge alone. I can't say, hey, what do I care about your concerns, about what anybody else thinks? What do I care about you? If you're of that opinion, you know, you do it your way, I'll do it my way. I don't care what you think. Why should I care about how my life affects you? I have liberty. I've been set free in Christ. I've studied my Bible, and I know that the Bible has not spoken to, to, to this issue. It's a gray issue, and the Scriptures don't forbid it. So I'm going to live the way that I want to live. And Paul says, wait a minute. You haven't thought about love. Paul says, if you do that, there's a good chance, potentially, that you could hurt your brother or your sister. Unintentionally, but potentially, you could hurt your brother because they'll be offended. Now, he develops the reason uh, for that in verse 4. In verse 4 of chapter 8, he says, So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and there is no God but one. You see, one of the arguments that the, the Grecian Christians were making was, well, this meat that's been offered up to idols, it doesn't really matter because idols are nothing. We know that there's only one true God, one true Father. And he goes into, uh, the, in verse 4, this uh, doxology of praise unto God. And Paul says, I agree with that. I know that the idols are nothing. I know that there's nobody there in that idol, that there's only one God. And that, in your mind, settles the issue. And that you think, because this meat that's been offered up to idols, an idol is nothing, therefore you can eat it, and it shouldn't offend anyone. And people shouldn't be stressed out over this. Paul says, that's a great argument. But Paul isn't finished. In verse 7, he responds to their reason, reasoning and says, but not everyone knows this. Knows what? knows that idols are nothing. Not everyone knows that idols are nothing. You know it. You have an understanding of it. You're mature enough in the faith that you know that there's no problem. You have liberty to eat this meat that's been offered up to idols. But there are, Paul says, there are brothers and sisters who are new to the faith, who don't have an inner understanding of this, whose consciences are weak, who are overly scrupulous. There are people within the body of Christ, Paul says, that you need to be concerned about out of your love for them and that you may need to limit your freedom and the exercise of your liberty because of your weaker brother or sister in the faith. There are other brothers and sisters in the body that may not know that idols are not real. Some of them are new to the faith walk. 
Some of them, Paul says, have just come out of pagan Christianity. They spent their whole life in these Grecian temples. They grew up with all of these sacrifices. They grew up with, with all of these ideas about demons being attached to the food and, and food being offered up to the idols to appease the gods. He, he says, their consciences are weak. They are a weaker brother. They're a weaker sister. And you, even though you're well beyond that and you're more mature than that and you don't have scruples like that and you're enjoying your freedom in Christ, you need to be very, very careful because if you exercise your freedom, you may cause this weaker brother or sister to, he uses the word, stumble and fall. It, in verse 7, he says that their, their conscience is so weak that it could cause their conscience to be defiled. Cause their conscience to beat up on them, to make them feel sinful, to make them feel guilty, to make them feel condemned. And Paul says, you're better off rather than causing your weaker brother or sister in the faith to to let their weak conscience be defiled and for them to stumble and fall, it's better for you to exercise a limit on your liberty than it is causing you, the brother that you love and the one that Christ died for. He, he goes on and he says, this is a person that Christ paid the penalty of death for. It's better for you to limit your liberty rather than exercise your spiritual freedom and offend them. Knowledge is not everything. Knowledge says, in this gray matter you can eat. But love says, out of concern for my weaker brother or sister, maybe I shouldn't eat because I don't want to cause them to stumble and fall. Knowledge says, in this gray matter, an idol is nothing. There's only one true God. But love says, I voluntarily choose to limit my freedom because my brother believes it's wrong and I'll bow, I voluntarily bow to his belief until he comes to a point of maturity and understands that so that I don't offend him and cause him to fall. They say food does not bring us near to God. God doesn't care what we eat. He doesn't care whether it's pizza or spaghetti or hamburgers or hot dogs or broccoli or cauliflower. God cares that you're not gluttonous. God cares that you're not overindulgent. God cares that you're not wasteful, but he doesn't care what food you eat. And Paul says God doesn't really care about whether the meat was offered up to idols or not. But knowledge is not enough. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so in verse 9 he says, be careful that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak to cause them to fall into sin. Paul says, be very, very careful. Be discerning. Be wise. Be loving. Take into account. Take into account how will this affect my sister or my brother? Now, you've got a glazed look about you today. And I'm sure you're thinking, now, how in the world is Crocker going to apply this to our life in the 21st century? Let me attempt. Because of the legalistic and pietistic environment in which I grew up, uh, the idea of 
drinking and bibing alcohol was absolutely forbidden. We were a teetotally, teetotaling family altogether. Alcohol never passed these lips until I was 18. <laughs> I'm honest, if nothing else. When I went away to college, I wanted to find out what all this was about. And so I began to drink. I'm sad, I'm not proud to admit, but I'm sad to admit that I began to drink fairly heavily. I was a happy drunk. <laughs> and I became controlled by alcohol. And alcohol was controlling my behavior and my decisions. And there were some nights that my college roommate had to carry me home from the bar because I had imbibed way too much. Now, I want you to understand, despite my upbringing and my training, I do not believe that it is a sin to have a glass of wine with your meal. I know that some of you may be shocked by that admission. And I expect a few notes this week about that. <laughs> there is no place in Scripture that I can find that it is a sin or that it is wrong to have a drink, an alcoholic drink. There are many people who try to proof text and tell you that it's wrong. There will be many people who will try to convince you that the water that was turned into wine at Cana of Galilee was Welch's grape juice. Hogwash. It was probably the very best wine there was. But because of my own proclivity during, and thankfully God got me by the nap of the neck when I was a junior in college and kind of shook me loose and helped me to kind of figure out the wrong ways in which I was going and I repented of my sin because it is a sin to be drunk with wine. Ephesians says, be ye not drunk with wine, but be ye filled with the Spirit. You can have a glass of wine, but when drinking that glass of wine turns into drunkenness, it is a sin. Because of my own proclivity toward this, and because I know that I am not the only one who may be inclined that way, and you may think this old-fashioned and strange. But I have voluntarily chosen to limit my liberty, even though I think it's perfectly, I am perfectly free to do that. I have voluntarily chosen to limit my liberty because I'm a part of the body of Christ, and within the body there are some with weaker consciences who may have scruples about that, or who may have their own proclivity toward alcoholism. And if they see me exercising and enjoying my liberty as I drink a glass of wine out in a public setting and then come to the conclusion that it must be okay if Pastor Rick does that, it must be okay if that I can do that, but their conscience will be offended because 
either their, their weak conscience or their immaturity or lack of understanding or proclivity toward alcoholism. I don't know what the reasons may be, but it, I might become a stumbling block to them because they saw me enjoying and exercising my freedom. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so out of love, not knowledge, out of love, I choose to say, I'm going to step back from that, even though I think it's okay for me to do so. I'm going to step back from that because I love my brother, I love my sister, and I don't want to be a stumbling block to them. And cause them to fall. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be a part of a church where the first thing on everyone's mind was not enjoying the freedom that is ours in Christ, but being a part of a church where there was such a great love and concern for one another that we did whatever we could to care for one another and not become a source of discouragement or defeat or ruin for them. Jen, I want you to jump to the last slide here. Uh, You'll have to work through some. There we go. In all of this that I'm saying this morning, I understand and I will grant you, and I wish we had more time to talk about this, but in this there is an inherent tension. There's a tension between enjoying my freedom in Christ over and against limiting my freedom so as not to become a stumbling block to my brother or sister. I don't have a perfect formula for how to do that. I think it takes godly discernment. I think it takes you thinking about it and praying about it and trying to work through it and us working through it together. But we are free in Christ. We've been set free, no longer under the law. We are, God loves us no better because of our performance. But while we are set free through Christ, we are still part of the body of Christ. And as such, because of our love for one another and our concern for one another, this freedom that we enjoy in Christ must be set over and against the possibility of needing, as I have with alcohol, of limiting my freedom so as not to become a hindrance to another brother or sister. That's a tough thing. It's a really tough thing to get right. But I believe that if, at least in bringing the issue to us, and I'm so glad that the the text today forces us to look at it, that, that... that we need to be concerned. We need to be concerned about our brothers and sisters. And as Paul says, if what I eat, in verse 13, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. You say, well, what's the principle here? The principle is love. How will it affect my weaker brother? You don't have the option to say, well, I don't care. I'm going to live my own life the way I want to live it. He's weak. He doesn't understand. He hasn't come to this maturity level. He's got his own problems. No, no, no. Christ died for him. 
He's your brother and, he, and she's your sister. And you, when you sin against her or him, you are sinning against Christ. That's what Paul says. I believe that each of us have to deal with these gray areas. Areas to which the scripture does not speak. And on the one hand, we should take uh, real uh, care against causing another weaker brother to stumble. But also, in our zeal to aid my weaker brother, I should also be careful not to destroy the liberty that is mine in Christ. And that's the tension. Liberty in Christ over and against not offending my weaker brother. It's one thing to restrain myself from eating meats that have been offered to idols. It is quite another thing to demand that everyone in the church also restrain themselves in the same manner. The first is a matter of exercising my love for my Christian brother or sister. The second is putting another Christian under bondage. And that is equally as bad. And so we in the church, in the body of Christ, find ourselves between these two tensions. On the one hand, limiting our individual liberties because of love and concern for our weaker brothers and sisters. On the other hand, the temptation to set as standards those things that should be a matter of conscience at the very most and not one of law. And too often the church has gone to one extreme or the other. Either allowing wrong actions in the name of liberty or else moving in the direction of legalism in the name of protecting the weaker brother. And both, listen, both extremes must be avoided. And we must live with this tension and ask for godly wisdom and discernment to live authentic lives as we wend our way through some of these gray matters. May God be our helper as we do that. We need His help in these matters. We need His help. Let's pray together.